Hi, I'm Rabbi Ari Neve, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with the Twist. And look, it's hard, but you're doing great. Hey friends, it's really exciting to be with you this week, and while I don't have a game for our intro, I do have a really good friend who is joining us this week, and I hope that you're excited because we're going to look at a difficult portion, both from a social justice lens, but also from a modern lens, a blessing versus curse lens, a making a choice lens, and those aren't always easy either. We know that this is one of the more difficult portions that we faced, and we hope that you'll stay tuned to help us dig into it, delve into it, and maybe destroy some preconceptions about whether or not we should just skip the hard parts, the difficult parts. And don't forget, even when it's hard, you're still doing great. We're excited to be with you. We're excited to explore. And we hope you're excited to join us on the journey. interesting in a lot of rabbinic traditions when people really want to get your attention there's a phrase that's tashima come and hear but in this particular portion it's not necessarily about hearing it's really about seeing and believing what you're seeing but wait a minute you still have to listen a lot and after all this is a podcast so I guess we're combining things today we're hoping that you're going to see what we're talking about in the future but we're also hoping that you'll hear and listen to what's going on in this particular portion And I'm really excited because don't worry, it's not just me. I'm not alone. I've got a friend to help us get through this. And someone who's actually, wait a minute, a published author on this particular Parsha, that's very exciting. So thrilled to introduce and welcome to the show Rabbi Ariel Neve, who was ordained from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati campus in, wait for it, 2015. If someone had asked him when he'd be doing five years from then, he wouldn't have known the answer because I don't think anyone was planning on 2020. Since then, he's been an educator, an organizer, an activist, an all-around social justice nudge in positions in North Carolina, Illinois, and of course in his hometown of Long Island, where for the past year, he's had the distinct honor of teaching seventh graders, which has fast become one of his favorite opportunities so far, and he wrote, he is not kidding. And I have to tell you, I agree. I really love working with seventh graders. I think they're amazing. Ari, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Drinking and Drashing, Tour with a Twist. It is an honor and a privilege to be here today. Almost Rav, Amanda Weiss, friend and educator extraordinaire. This is the very first time that I can actually say this and not ironically. Longtime listener, first time caller. So (laughs) it's so cool to be here and thanks for having me. It's incredible. I did forget to mention this is Rabbi Ariel Neves' first podcasting debut. We're excited that he chose us. We are thrilled and honored. And we have another first coming for you around the corner. But before we get to that, I do want to note we are missing our favorite co-host, Gabe Snyder, today. He had a loss in his family. We're missing him this week, but we send him and the rest of the Curse Snyder clan a warm hug and love from Drinking and Drashing. We know he misses us, and it is his plan to be back with us for our next episode. 
But don't worry, we're still enveloped by the exciting, extraordinary, incredible executive producer, Edon Waldman, who loves being psyched up on this podcast. So what's going on, Edon? How are you today? I'm doing great today. Really, really great. I don't know if I'm doing as great as you just described me to be, but hopefully I can live up to it. I'm truly thrilled to be with the both of you. You know, I know our listeners don't ever get to listen to the, you know, backstage conversation, but I have to tell you, like, it's been 10 to 15 minutes of just nonstop laughter for me in this part of the woods. And part of the woods, I mean, Brooklyn, like where there are no woods in my particular apartment building, but 150 feet away. But I digress. And this is a long portion. Let's get started. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amanda. I have been having a little bit of difficulty lately. Oh, in, uh, in, in what way? How? So, you know, I don't love making decisions. Oh, I also don't like making decisions. And it feels like people just think that there are only two choices, right? There's a right, there's a wrong, there's a black, there's a white. That like there's, you know, you can only go one way or the other way. And, and it feels like it's hard for me, right? Like, I mean, there seem to be a lot of options out there, but sometimes it feels like maybe there's only one right way to go. There's not always just a light mode and dark mode. Okay, I hear that. And I mean, like, if you think about it, I know that, like, you're a movie lover. I know that you love Marvel. I thought maybe there was, like, a little bit of a Marvel-esque, like, you know, area to last week's portion where God made some promises. But we don't have a game today, and I'm a little nervous because I don't know if you know, I've been really busy, and podcast rundowns are games thing that's not supposed to be in my wheelhouse, and so I don't know what to do. I got you covered. Don't worry. Don't worry. Wait, really? All right, Justin. Yeah, I got it. I, I, I totally wrote it. Amazing. <laughs> Just in case last week's episode left you hungry for more Torah, especially because God made a pretty Marvel-esque superhero promise to the people of Israel, don't worry. We've got you covered with this distilled rundown for Parshat Re'eh. God says to the Israelites, if you want it simple, here goes. I'm putting before you two options, blessing or curse. Your choice. Okay, fair. It's conditional. You have to follow the commandments to get blessings, and if you don't, well, then you're cursed. Got it? Okay. Have you ever been to someone's house and you need to learn the house rules? God's got you covered when you're coming into the promised land. Bless at Mount Gerizim, curse at Mount Ebal. Both are past the Jordan. Once you pass that mark, make sure to obey the commandments. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just, well, actually, I guess God is telling you what to do. Noted. Some words on destruction. As the Israelites enter the land, they're meant to destroy anything non-Adonai related that was there before. Altars, pillars, sacred posts, statues, etc. Don't use these sites as praying places because, don't worry, God's got a site all picked out for you. Wonder where that will be. Hmm. Wherever it is, that's where you'll bring sacrifices, offerings, and also celebrate and feast because God is awesome and has blessed you because you're following the commandments, right? Of course, right! Individualism is coming secondary to the needs of the community once we enter into the promised land. And as a community, we're coming together for sacrifices, commemorations, and celebrations. A reminder, not to any place you want, but to the place God chooses and will show you. This brings me back to Genesis, but I know we're on the other side of the Torah scroll right now, so anyway, here goes. Dietary restrictions go back as far as the Bible, and probably before, but hey, you can eat meat wherever God has granted you land, but you need to pour out the blood, no blood, don't do it. We know you're going to work hard to plant fruits and raise livestock, but don't forget, God gets first dibs on all the firstlings. That's a weird word. And also, don't forget to take care of the Levites, because, you know, they can't work because they've got to take care of the place that God will choose to dwell eventually. Nice work if you can get it, which you can't if you're not a Levite. 
Also, wait, there seems to be a repeat here about eating, maybe a record scratch, but okay, again, eat meat, no blood, got it, noted. If you listen to the commandments, you're golden. Your enemies will be defeated and dispossessed, but mostly because God's afraid that you won't be able to abstain from idolatrous practices, because they look so cool, maybe? Yikes. But also, don't sacrifice children. This portion's really long, so we're going to take from the main points because Gabe's not here and I got put in charge this week. Totally. Totally me. I totally got put in charge this week. Here's some highlights. God's in charge. Don't listen to anyone else saying, hey, follow other gods. Punishment for that divination, my dude? Death. Seriously. Two, kill anyone that suggests idolatry. I'm sensing a theme here. Three, you're God's children, so don't hurt yourselves. You're a chosen people. Four, dietary rules. Again, Kashrut's in chapter 14, what you can and can't eat. The most famous, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Five, set aside tithes for the poor and also for God. And also, if you need to, God accepts cash. Six, and don't forget the Levites. They get stuff every three years. Seven, unironically, seven's about Shemitah, the seventh year. Forgive all debts. Eight, make sure that everyone has enough to eat because there's enough to go around for everyone. Nine, make sure that the slaves that work in your house are freed or have the ability to choose to stay. Ten, oh right, don't forget to do Passover in the springtime and Sukkot in the fall time. Maybe not Gabe gorgeous, but we got it done right. That's what you get with Parashat Re'eh. Okay, so Idan, firstly, outstanding. And secondly, I want to bring in one of my mom's favorite and well-worn lines that I think is particularly apropos for this parsha. Whenever, you know, she would be a mom and she would bestow mom-like rulings upon me and my brother and sister, and we would push back, she would say, and I quote, what would you do if I didn't worry about you this much? And I think that is a particularly apt understanding of this parsha, as you said, because there's a lot here. Those are 10 really spot-on descriptions of this week's parsha, but other, you know, I think you can sum it up to say, listen, what would you do if I didn't worry about you this much? It's because I love you. And if you don't listen to me, you're dead. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, yeah, you'd be dead. Which probably, I think, if we continued that line of thought for my mom also, would be the same sentence. Like, you'd be dead in a ditch, Ari. So, my mom, God, that's for me and my therapist to figure out, I guess. But either way, you nailed it. It's a pretty cool shout out, you know, basically. Putting your mom in the same level as God. Idan, that was incredible. That was maybe the best rundown that I've ever heard you read. Because it was the first rundown that you ever read. You were so good. Yay, Don! I'm so glad. We know that all of the fans are especially proud of you today, executive producer Don, that makes sure that the episode continues even when one of your hosts is out. But that was so good. And thank you for uh, fixing number seven and saying unironically, because you definitely wrote this yourself 100% and definitely didn't make a mistake. So... That was beautiful. You're incredible. And yay, I'm really excited to get started with the conversation. Let's go. All right, it's really such a pleasure to have you on. And I've already been laughing so much as we've been recording on and off air. And I guess the first question I'll ask you, because you teased me about this in the very beginning, is what exactly should we be calling you during this episode? Do we call you Ariel? Do we call you Ari? Do we call you Rabbi Navet? Like, it's a little confusing, and I think the people want to know. I mean, I hope the people want to know. 
I think you think I'm a lot more interesting than I think I am, but I'm totally cool with that, and I appreciate it sincerely. No, Literally nobody has ever called me Rabbi Naveh in the seven years I've been a rabbi because, I don't know, it's too formal. I've been Rabbi Ari for most of my career, but you're also Amanda Weiss, and you've known me for a long time now, so you can just call me Ari because I'm Ari. Amazing. I'm excited to call you Ari. We'll see. Maybe Idan will call you Rabbi Ari. We'll see. But I feel like Idan in these past, like, just few moments has also, like, maybe earned the right. So we'll see how it goes by the end of this episode. And, you know, I think Idan can do anything he wants forever because he read the rundown. Major shout out, by the way, just to one of my former mentors, Rabbi Mark Klein, who really helped guide me through how I wanted to use my title. And he always said, In terms of the title, you have people call you whatever they need to at that time. So if someone calls me Rabbi Naveh, at that point, that's what they need of me. If someone just calls me Ari, that's what they need of me at that time. And I'm cool with that entire spectrum. It's like the conversation about pronouns, right? If you accept the idea that you can, you know, there's this like giant spectrum of, you know, your name and your label and how you identify and all of these things, then, you know, it's neat like that. It allows for that much more of a dynamic presence, which I have been called before. So speaking of your dynamic presence, I've been able to watch your career span a few different places and have a lot of impacts all over. And so I know that you have a lot of interest, a lot of passion, a lot of enthusiasm for so many different areas of Judaism, but also of life overall, and that you are somebody who agrees with me that you can really live life through a Jewish lens, however you find that lens, right? You can take ownership of it in your own way. And so I want to know what actually drives the work that you do and what passions and insights and beliefs are the things that help you get up every morning and say, like, I'm going to make a difference in the world today, or I'm going to look at the world in this way today. Oof, man, that is a great question. You know, honestly, I think it's threefold. I think first and foremost, if I'm looking at, to use super high German HUC language, if I'm thinking about my Weltenschen, right, my inspirational presence, my being, my all of those things. If you ask me to define Weltenschen, I'm sure that I probably couldn't, but I can use it in a sentence. So thank you to all of my awesome professors at HUC. I think that Judaism is supposed to be a lens through which you see and interact with the world, right? However that is for you and whatever it means for you in that moment. And so for me, as Amanda put in my bio, I've been, you know, I'm an activist, I'm an organizer, I'm an educator, I'm all of these things. All of those things are informed by my Jewish identity and how I see the world, right? You know, right now I've been doing some really amazing work, working with other clergy here on, well, hopefully soon be working with other clergy here on Long Island to do some really incredible work on criminal justice reform, right? Specifically around prison reform here in New York. Shout out to RAP, Releasing Aging People in Prison, one of the coolest organizations here in New York. But to me, that is one of the most Jewish issues that I can think about because especially as we're coming up to the high holidays in like six weeks, there's this entire concept of tshuva, of redemption, of what does it mean to look at, you know, all of the things that you've done in the past, in this context, in the past year, but, you know, in the criminal justice reform context and, you know, in the 
broader scheme of who you are. How do you look at that, your history, your past, as an opportunity for growth in the future, right? So that you're not just defined exclusively by one thing that you did wrong in your life. And that's not the one thing that people see you as. A number of years ago, I was at a consultation on conscience that the Rack put out, and we had the really amazing honor to hear Brian Stevenson speak. You know, he wrote Just Mercy, and he founded the uh, Museum of Tolerance down in Birmingham. And that's a lot of what he talked about, this idea that we are not supposed to be defined exclusively by our worst mistakes, right? And I think, you know, to segue a little bit into what I hope we'll be talking about about the Parsha this week, there is this whole idea about like, what about our history and our past do we want to highlight to demonstrate who we are as a people? And how do we make sure that the worst aspects of our history are noted, but they're not the one thing that defines us exclusively, right? That you have to absolutely show and educate and teach about those aspects of our history that are unsavory and deeply problematic. But those aren't the ones that define us exclusively. And the more that we understand those aspects of our history and how they define us and how they are integrated into who we are, the better our future will be. You know, we are mosaics as people in all of those ways. And we're a mosaic as a people too. I think that there's a lot to be said for dealing with the difficult portions that we have in this, by the way, this portion in itself, as you know, is a difficult portion, right? We talk about the dispossession of people in an area that are already there. And I always, you know, you talk about teaching seventh graders. And one of the things that I talk with my seventh graders about, especially when we're talking about living real Torah, is this idea that rules are put out because things happen. So when you see like a don't walk on the grass sign, the reason that it's there is because people have walked on the grass. If you see a don't speak during the Torah service sign, it's because people have spoken during the Torah service. Literally never. I've literally never been in a place where people talk during services. What are you talking about? Every conversation in every community that I've been in, it's the utmost respect for those learning Torah ever, all the time. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that about you. I always joke that my favorite Jewish byline I've ever seen came from like a history class and a very old synagogue in New York where a bylaw was like, you shouldn't sing off key. And like, that's always my favorite because clearly somebody sang off key so loudly and so badly that like, they need to make a bylaw about it. Oh, but yeah, but then you think like that poor soul who sang off key, like they were probably singing with all of their heart. And, you know, God bless them for trying and being so excited about it. And, you know, God bless the people who made that rule for not like, putting that person's name on the rule like no singing off key we mean you joan (laughs) like joan's just singing she's doing her thing what's really fascinating about that i think is that the torah actually doesn't always shy away from that i mean like we have in our history like difficult texts like we literally have pinchas killing people for getting involved with idolatrous you know others and here in this particular portion i struggled even with this idea of we're meant to destroy anything that might tempt us. And the reason why is because we've been tempted before, right? These laws are in place because, as Yidon said so beautifully, right, God's kind of afraid that we're not going to be able to abstain from everything that we're seeing around us because we're going to think that that's really cool and we can't we can't do it. And also, I have to say, like, rate this, also don't sacrifice children. Like, there is a line in there that's like, 
other people, they sacrifice children. Don't do that. That's bad. That's a not thing that we should do. And I always think that our Torah, our Talmud, that Judaism in itself tended to write as if it were trying to create what they hoped would be an ideal living situation in a knowingly imperfect world. But that's difficult. Like, what happens when these rules are, you must absolutely at all costs avoid the temptations of the other, while at the same time holding on to, you must be as good and kind as you possibly can to each other. Well, you know, as an expert on all things Torah, I can absolutely state unequivocally that it's really, really hard. That's my big insight, you know? I, I know on your podcast, you have, for the social media posts, you have like quotes and tidbits that you put out. So you can put that as my quote, like, it's really hard, says Rabbi Ari, you know, so that so that everybody sees like, wow, what insight that man has. What a leader in our community. No, um, I dig it. And I appreciate that. I think what you see in this parsha and I think in the Torah in general, I think is built in vulnerability, right? The understanding that, yeah, no, we're going to mess up. We're going to do stupid things, right? You know, in an earlier parsha, right, as soon as the Israelites have made it out of Egypt and they're en route to freedom, right? They're in the wilderness. They're in the desert. They're going. One of the first things that happens is the people fetch about how they don't get meat and they don't have fresh produce, right? And it's like, bruh. You guys, you literally just left enslavement and you're quetching about how you don't have meat. You have to be able to see the long view. But we as humans, and I will use the royal we here because this is going to be a true fact. We're not good at the long view. We're just not. And especially, look, this parsha in particular, they're on the precipice. The Israelites are on the precipice of this whole new everything, Right. And their leader, who's been their leader for all of this time, isn't going with them. That's so much. So there's, even with the definitiveness of the language, right? You know, it's, and I'll, I'll touch on this, but especially in the context of, as you mentioned, the destruction of the idols, it's Abed Ta Abdun, right? You will absolutely destroy those idols that are not of Adonai, right? It's pretty definitive language. But I think within that, there's a level of vulnerability that says, look, we understand that you're going to be tempted to do that, right? Because you have in the past, right? Read the golden calf. Don't do that. But here's why. And, you know, the Torah isn't always great with the explication. That's why there's Midrash and all of the rabbinic text and law that follow. But it's not a concession. It's just an understanding of the basic reality of people. We don't do long view well, especially when there's big, huge transitions. Like we're about to see with this Parsha, right? It's one of the very last. They're right on the cusp of this big, huge new thing where they're entering into this land they've been told so much about. So I dig that there's the understanding that, look, we get that you guys are going to mess up. You've done it before. So try not to. Don't. But also, especially, like I said before about, you know, Rosh Hashanah and the high holidays, note that you messed up, acknowledge it, and acknowledge that you're going to try to do better for the year to come. And look, it's not like Dayanu, it's not enough, it's not great, you're, you know, it's a start. And um, in the context that I wrote about for the social justice 
Torah commentary in which I am featured, I wrote about this idea uh, specifically talking about the idols, Amanda, that you mentioned, and the mandate to destroy them. I wrote about, in our American historical context, the idea of the proliferation of monuments to Confederate generals or Confederate leaders or soldiers uh, that popped up after the Civil War. And when I say after the Civil War, I mean like a lot after the Civil War, not like six months to a year after the ceasefire was ceasefired. We'll say that. We're talking like at least 20 to 30, if not sometimes 50 years after the war ended, these monuments were erected. Like they were erected with the specific purpose of demonstrating a perspective. And that perspective was the war and its intentions were to maintain the structures of white supremacy. That white Anglo-Saxon Americans are the ideal and everybody else is below. And that's a really gross perspective to have. It is, however, a perspective that has been very popular in our American history. So if that's what a monument represents, then to me, as we see in the Torah portion, it's really important to take that down to show this is not the perspective that we want to hold forth anymore. But you have to show that you're not shying away from how that perspective was so pervasive in that era and that it's still kind of sort of really pervasive now in a lot of ways. But that in getting rid of that monument, you're saying we don't need for this to be the prevailing idea anymore. We're going to teach about it. We're going to show why it was so prevalent. And we're going to highlight new voices, either in monument form, in historical document form, in podcast form, in all of these forms. You highlight the voices of the people who weren't highlighted back then. And you show why it's been so long that those voices of the marginalized, why it took so long for them to get to a point where their voices could be heard. I'm sitting with what you're saying. And I think that you dropped a lot of difficult perspectives. And I actually want to, if not echo it, maybe help emphasize it. This portion has one word that shows up a lot, pretty continuously. In fact, I would actually argue that Deuteronomy has this one word that shows up a lot. And the word is makom. Now, it might be hamakom or bamakom. And what our listeners might know or might not know is that a name for God is sometimes hamakom. The literal translation of the Hebrew, hamakom, is the place. And I know Idan brought that up a lot in, in the rundown that he so beautifully delivered today. But there's going to be this place that God's going to pick. And some people might see it as hamakom, bamakom, that that's God, God's self. It is sometimes hard to understand perspectives, even holy ones, when they seem so scattered or far away. You know, when something is distanced from us, when we distance ourselves from something. And by the way, this gets mentioned a lot in Re'e as well, is that if we're too far away, God is going to find ways to help us. You know, that, but when we're really distanced from something, our perspective of that thing might be distorted. It might be different than we ever saw it. And so I really appreciate what you're sharing with us about this idea that these monuments that at one point played a purpose 
may have been distorted from the distance that people were either too close to it and it may have been distorted or too far away that it doesn't matter anymore, right? The impact is harmful. The story needs to be changed. It needs to be reframed. It needs to be possibly even destroyed or taken down. And, you know, I always think about what we bring to these portions at the time that we read them or when we discuss them. And this idea that perspectives can be holy and also distorted and distanced as, you know, the famous Rabbi Ariel Neveh has said, really hard, you know. I love that that's my primary major insight tonight. <laughs> your pull quote, you know, it's what you asked for. It is, man, it is. That your pull quote would be like, it's really hard. But I want to say something, and I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you before. And so, you know, I'm throwing it out there. In your bio... You called yourself an educator, an organizer, an activist, an all-around social justice nudge. So I think in this Parsha that God actually is a combination. And so I'm going to say, Ari, that maybe you and God come together here as a nudgicator. Oh, snap. We just made our own word today. But hear me out that you are a nudgicator, which is you are an educator who is really nudging people to understand the major point which is, it's not about you anymore. It's about the community. It's about coming together for a purpose. It's about making sure that, like, you are where you're supposed to be. And so, Ari, I gift you, Nudgicator. I hope that maybe that's going to become your new LinkedIn, you know, short phrase. Literally, that's going on my resume right now. Rabbi Ariel Neve, Nudgicator. Oh my god, I love that. It is... I don't think... A word has ever described me better. You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> that, uh, you know, when Ari rebrands as the Jewish educator, it all started. <laughs> it all started here with drinking and drashing. And divination, my dude. Divination, my dude. So I also want to say that there's something here that is difficult for what you talked about. Because you talked about being in the South and taking down these monuments to slavery and white supremacy. And I want to say that there is a major point in our rundown today that we did bring up, which is that number nine, make sure that the slaves that work in your house are freed or have the ability to choose to stay. And there is slavery that's talked about in this portion. And I'm curious how you reconcile the two, especially when you're talking about this idea of breaking down these idols to slavery and, and how we're able to kind of recognize our own place in it. Yeah. Okay, so much to go into over there on that one. I'm going to say flat out, I am by no means an expert on this aspect of, you know, the kind of quality of slavery in the text, right? This is just my one perspective. But I do think it's important to note that the quality of slavery that's mentioned in this parsha, and really in the Torah writ large, is markedly different than the idea of slavery, of chattel slavery, that was proliferated here in the States in the 19th century, right? And was the primary reason for the Civil War in and of itself. Anybody that says states' rights, they mean slavery. They just may not know that they do. But the quality of slavery in this context is more indentured servitude. And the distinction, I think, is exactly, Amanda, as you mentioned, this idea that you're mandated if you own these slaves, right? to let them choose to go free. 
Granted, that's still a decision that isn't yours to make if you're a slave. It's still up to the person who owns you. So it's still not, I'm not like trying to, you know, glorify the idea of indentured servitude in this context or in any context. But the idea was you are serving a debt or a purpose. And once that debt or purpose is cleared, that's it. Whereas with chattel slavery in, in America, you were owned by a person and you were bought and sold or traded as such. You were literally considered property. And the idea of whether and how to be set free was a lot less negotiable in that context. And so, you know, I think that's a really useful distinction there. But that being said, again, slavery is slavery. In any context, it's still not great. And so I think in this context, it's important to note, like, yeah, there are some hella unsavory elements in the Torah. And it's really okay to say that. And it's okay to call them out. It's in fact, to me, necessary to do so. Because again, it's the same thing with American history, right? The idea of owning people was de rigueur for a really long time in our American society. It just was, right? Like that was. And up until the 14th Amendment, and really up until the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, and even still, the idea of equality is well out of our reach right now, still in 2022. But, you know, up until the 14th Amendment, African-Americans were considered three-fifths of a person, right? So that's a reality that was our American history. And that's a lot of what those monuments represent, right? And I had this conversation with my dad, and that's a lot of what inspired me to write for their commentary, because my father is a war veteran. And so his perspective on a monument to a soldier is remarkably different than mine would be because he saw action in war and I have not, and I don't intend to anytime soon, God forbid. So to him, something that valorizes the heroism of a soldier fighting in battle is a useful reminder of the ravages and chaos of war, right? And the heroism that rises above it. However, just like you said before, Amanda, when you're too close to something, when you're too close to an idea or a perspective and you don't have a broader view, again, because humans are bad at long view, just in general, that one perspective can skew fully and completely. And so I'm not saying my dad's wrong in seeing that perspective. It's just an entirely different perspective than I have. But it's also really necessary for someone like him and really all of us to understand why that's not the only perspective that you can have or that you need to have on something like that, right? Again, there's a lot of really cruddy stuff in the Torah and you have to highlight that. You have to say it out loud. And same with American history, a lot of really awful stuff in our American history. It just is. Highlighting it, noting it, and acknowledging it doesn't diminish the holiness of the Torah and highlighting the ickier elements of our history doesn't diminish our Americanness or my Americanness, right? You know, Reverend Berlin wrote God Bless America as a, you know, nebbish Jewish immigrant, still proud of America. It doesn't diminish my pride as an American. It, in fact, strengthens it to know that I can metabolize our dark history and try to work towards bringing about a better future. So yeah, I guess maybe my pull quote isn't, it's really hard, although it is. 
But maybe it's just that, you know, maybe we need to get better at the long view as humans. And that's also really hard. As much as I'm loving this conversation, it has unfortunately come to that time of thank yous and closing cues. And so Ari and Idan, and I guess for myself, and I miss you, Gabe, because I almost said Gabe in the middle of it all. In Re'e, we're meant to consider and meet the needs of others without keeping score. What's the best way that you've found to do this? And how can you do this without overdoing it? That is the $64,000 question. I think it's, so it is really all about that balance. And I think that balance is best found when you fully and absolutely understand your history, who you are, who you come from, what your story was and is, and you use that in a way to shape who you can be in the future. So that, you know, it's it's owning your story in a way that it helps to guide how you go about the rest of your journey, really. All right, beautiful. I know for me, this can be a slippery slope as I sometimes err on the side of overdoing it. There are people who would be like, you definitely like fall down the slide of overdoing it. I avalanche into overdoing it. I want to actually just point out that the reason that this question came in, I know we didn't talk about it a lot during the rest of the podcast, but the reason this question came in was because there is a part that Edon had said to us that we really should make sure that everyone has enough to eat because there's enough to go around for everybody. We're not supposed to forget the people who are maybe not able to work for themselves and we're supposed to set aside ties for the poor and for God and for the Levites and we're supposed to make sure that we don't you know, get super spoiled on our first fruits and believe that all of the hard effort that we've put in is all about us. And I was having a conversation with my orientation committee recently about a program that they're going to run actually the week that this episode is aired. And I was interested about how they were talking about self versus humanity. And one of them stated to me that we're not actually able to take care of others until we're taking care of ourselves. And so we need to make sure that we understand that there's enough to go around for everybody. And in that moment that we are then able to take care of other people that once we are set and we don't need to be like overstated, we don't need to be overcommitted. We don't need to be like, you know, we have everything in the bank, but that we are able to say like, we're okay. We're good. We're in a place where we actually can feel like we can help others And that's different for everybody. Just like doing your best will look different day to day, our ability to give differs day to day. But the idea is that there's always something that we might be able to give as long as we're not hurting ourselves in the process. And that giving isn't always a zero-sum game. Just because we give doesn't mean that we lose. There's a lot that we can actually gain from, I think, being in partnership with other people who might need our help. Idan, I hope that inspired... I know you love going last, so what thoughts do you have as somebody who also sometimes falls into the overcommitting game? I like how you said that you aren't able to give to others before you give attention to yourself. And in that direction, lately I've been trying to work on that aspect of things. You know, I've been spending the last two years putting all my time and effort and attention towards doing work for other people. And a lot of this year I've had more time to myself than I have, you know, the pandemic preceding that. And so I've really been trying to focus on giving more attention to myself and it's been hard, but I think that what I think is really important is in that regard is to have someone to talk to, have people to talk to 
and without that time and without the people to talk to, you don't really, it's going to be really hard to move forward otherwise. It seems like the theme that we're finding in this episode, which I think was a little unexpected, is that things are really hard. There's not always an easy answer. I mean, I think that there have been questions that I've struggled with. There have been questions that Ari struggled with. There's questions that Idan has struggled with today that like this portion is not an easy portion and it leaves us with a lot more questions than answers. And Ari, you know, these are fun conversations and difficult conversations. And if people want to continue these conversations, how can they best find or follow you? So Idan, I love the point that you made. You know, none of these decrees that God makes in this Parsha or any Parsha are made to individuals, they're made to community. And the more that we remember that we are in community with each other, and I'm going to pull another amazing Brian Stevenson quote, the more that we get proximal to each other in our community and other communities, the more we can give of ourselves because we aren't giving of empty cisterns. Right. So if you want to continue this conversation with me, you can find me on Facebook at Ariel Nave, A-R-I-E-L-N-A-V-E-H. You can find me on Instagram. I think I'm at Ariel Nave on Instagram. I very seldom use Instagram. I need to get better at Instagram. I'm on Twitter at actual Rabbi Ari. And, you know, I'm also at a number of really awesome coffee shops all over Long Island. So if you're thinking, you know, I really want to get a cup of coffee and I'm in Long Beach, chances are I'm probably at that coffee shop sitting and doing my work and drinking quality coffee. So those are some really awesome ways you can keep in conversation with me. I usually like to talk, but I also like to listen a lot more. I was just about to jump in and say, and also listen, for those that are interested and haven't gotten it, Ari's a really great storyteller. And with the understanding that time is short, Ari, do you have any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes that you want to share with the crowd? I am terrible at telling jokes on command. So I'm just going to end with, I'm so glad to have taken on a new title as an educator. I'm going to basically be that. I hope to live up to that in all of the rest of my career. I am honored and slightly horrified, but really just like genuinely entertained. Ari, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's been so fun. You know, I can't remember the last time you and I got to laugh this much while recording an episode, (laughs) but it's been such a pleasure and so much fun. Iran, thank you for being here tonight. I am so thrilled that you had your debut as the rundown reader. You are great. It was awesome. I am sure that everyone's going to love it. And I'm excited for Gabe's feedback when he comes back. He might be like, I'm out of a job. And you'll be like, absolutely not. Uh, And so that'll be fun. Thanks to Kate for making us sound so brilliant all the time. We're really thrilled that you edit for us and we hope that you continue to do so because we love you and we hope you love us in return, which is why you make us sound so good every week. And thank you to all of our listeners at home who are still giving us love, even though we're missing a crucial part of our drinking and drashing fam. And with that, Gabe, we love you too. And we want you to know that we're so excited for you to come back next week uh, when you've had some time away and some time to rest. Stay tuned for our conclusion coming at you soon. Normally, this is a section in which I talk with Gabe about what I learned during the podcast and we talk about some of the highlights and what we're really excited about. But I have to tell you the truth, which is that 
Ari sometimes brought to me this idea that Mel Brooks has brought to the table that sometimes things are really difficult and you need to be able to laugh about them in order for them to really hit home and stay within. And I did a lot of laughing this episode, mostly because some of the messaging that we put out there was really simple. Like, hey, things are hard. Or, hey, seriously, stay away from things that might tempt you into doing dangerous things that will hurt you. Or, hey, you know, don't drink blood. I don't know. Like, you know, the tour is definitely not about vampire ways, and that's okay. But I think realistically, one of the things that I'm sitting here with and I'm still struggling with is this idea of what it is to be great for your own community while just blatantly dispossessing, dismissing, disregarding those that are on the outside. I think nowadays we try not to do this. We actually try really hard to go against the grain and we try to be gracious and merciful and not super judgmental when we can. But I know that I have blind spots to that too. And I think one of the things that Ari brought up today that really matters is that these portions are difficult because they make us look at ourselves in a lens that's not easy to hold. When we're too close, when we're too far, these perspectives, these looks get distorted and our understanding sometimes can be diminished unless we're willing to look at them with someone else or through a new lens. We hope that you're willing to use other materials aside from our podcast to sometimes look at the partiote through different lenses. For instance, like the social justice Torah commentary that Ari is published in gives a completely different lens than our podcast might. It goes straight for social justice based interests in the Torah. So just like we look at it through a modern lens of leadership and innovation and entrepreneurship and really taking ownership of Judaism in our own terms and our own time, the social justice Torah commentary looks at Judaism and our Torah through a very specific lens, which is what are the actions that we could take or what are ways that we might look at some of the texts and learn from them in order to do better in the world. We invite you to look at that. We will have it in the show notes for you. And we invite you to keep staying tuned in. We're so excited to continue our adventures with you as we just move through Deuteronomy and get ready for a new start. We raise our glass to you this week. And with a special thanks to Edan again for getting it all started. Lechayim. Hi, I'm Rabbi Ari Nave, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Torah with the Twist. And remember, vodka is nonsense. Mm-hmm.